Great to have a wonderful scripture reading, a good long scripture reading there from the end of the Gospel of Luke, because this morning we come to a very unusual part of our Bible in Mark chapter 16. It was about nine months ago. We started in Mark chapter 1, and we've worked our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, now to the end of this amazing book. And as we come to the end of Mark chapter 16, there is a problem, and that's what's going to be the focus of our message today. You may have noticed it last week. On Easter Sunday, I preached Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and stopped there, and it was kind of a, an unusual stopping place. But if you have Mark chapter 16 open in front of you, you'll notice that in between Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and Mark chapter 16, verse 9, there is a note in brackets in the English Standard Version, and other Bibles will handle this very often in a similar way. And it says there, in between verses 8 and 9, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And then you look at verses 9 through 20, and you see that they are in double brackets. And you wonder, what does that mean? And so I'm going to help you this morning, the best that I can, to understand what that means. Why do some of the early manuscripts not include Mark 16, verses 9 through 20? Why are they in brackets in the Bible? Why didn't I preach them last week on Resurrection Sunday? Well, that's the unusual message that we have today. Normally, when I'm in the pulpit, I'm teaching you God's Word verse by verse. But here, we come to a section and the message is going to be, well, is this God's word or is it not God's word? Chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, the history of our Bible, from the time it was written by Moses until the last book was written by the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, and then the transmission of those ancient books, hand copying from the original and then hand copying from the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies until finally we come to the invention of the printing press. And after the printing press was invented, you no longer had to copy books by hand, but now you could make many, many copies of the book that would all be exactly the same as they were all printed on the same press. Well, that gives you some idea of the history of the Bible, that for thousands of years, from the time of Moses in 1400 BC, until the invention of the printing press and the beginning of the Renaissance, the Bible was copied by hand, by people who were scribes. A professional scribe was someone whose job was to read and write, to make books, to write letters for people who weren't able to write letters for themselves, draw up contracts, record court proceedings. These were professional writers because not everybody went to 12 years of school in the ancient world like most of us have done. So when it comes to understanding how the Bible has come to us, what we have are thousands upon thousands of handwritten copies of the texts of each book in the original language of Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, as well as translations of those books, because it wasn't after the printing press that the Bible began to be translated, but all the way back in ancient Egypt, Alexandria, the Old Testament was translated into Greek and then translated into other languages. And in the early centuries of the Christian church, the Greek New Testament written in the common language of the empire of Rome, which had been heavily influenced by the culture of the Greeks, and therefore Greek was the lingua franca, the common language of the people, that then the Greek of the New Testament was also translated into other languages. Now I'm giving you this history lesson on the transmission of the Bible text because in order to be able to understand why some early manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, it's important to understand what I'm telling you. Now, the big question that then we're going to be starting off with today in the Gospel of Mark, was this passage, verses 9 through 20, in the end of our Gospel of Mark, was it in the original manuscript of Mark's Gospel? Notice that the, the note just says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, that is an important question. We want to be able to know what is 
part of God's Word? What did Mark write? And if there's something that has been added to it, well, then we want to know that as well. So it's important for us to be able to know what is God's Word and what is not God's Word. And so this is probably the thorniest and most difficult issue in all of the New Testament and all of the Old Testament on how do we know whether or not these verses were a part of what Mark originally wrote. Now I'm going to reveal my bias here at the beginning. Some of you may already be familiar with this issue at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Some of you may have already heard messages or read books or heard uh, opinions and you might have your own opinion. And I want to reveal my bias from the beginning that I am going to say that this was not a part of the original manuscript of Mark's gospel and that I don't think it is Holy Scripture and that this is something that has been added on to what Mark originally wrote. Now, my bias is is that as I read verses 9 through 20, as I'm about to do, it's not my favorite part of the gospel of Mark. And I would prefer that this was not in the Bible. So I'm letting you know my bias, but I'm going to try my best to evaluate the evidence, that's what I've done this last week, against my bias. That's important. It's important for us to recognize our bias, but not allow our bias to influence the way that we weigh the evidence. This is a principle not only for Bible study, but a principle for all of life. You must be aware of your own bias so that you can work against it, so that you can pursue the truth and not allow your prejudices or your opinions to color how you handle the evidence. That's what I have undertaken to do this week. Now, before I read the text, let me have one other word of warning here. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10, God teaches us, It is an abomination to the Lord. That's a strong term. Abomination is one of the strong words. It's something that God hates. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. What does this verse mean? What is this abomination to God that he's talking about? But in the ancient world, and until very recently, when you went to the store to buy something like wheat, It didn't come in little packages that were already measured out and plastic wrapped and then you'd take it home. But instead, it was in a big barrel. And you'd go to the store and you'd say, hey, I'd like to buy a pound of wheat. And so he'd bring out his measure, his measuring cup that has one pound or, you know, three cups or whatever he was using to measure the wheat by. And then he would empty from the barrel into your bag, whatever you brought with you to carry the wheat home in. And so... An unequal weight or an unequal measure was if the grocer, the store owner, had one three-quart or one pound or whatever measuring cup that was a little bit smaller than it should be. So that when you came in, you said, I want two pounds of sugar, you actually got a little bit less than two pounds of sugar because he's using an unequal weight, an unequal measure. And then he's got a cup to measure that is a little bit larger than a pound or whatever when he's buying. So when he's buying, he's getting a little bit more than he should. And when he's selling, he's giving you a little bit less than he should. That's what God hates. God hates unequal weights and measures. Now, why am I bringing this up? What does this have to do with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20? Well, I'm going to be sifting for you, presenting to you a lot of evidence for what I think is the proper conclusion to draw on verses 9 through 20 in Mark chapter 16. Now, when it comes to evidence for or against a conclusion, evidence is not counted. Evidence is weighed. There could be a hundred pieces of evidence on one side and three pieces of evidence on the other side, but those three pieces of evidence might have more weight than those a hundred pieces of evidence. Some evidence is weightier than other evidence. And it is important that we, who are pursuing truth, use equal weights and measurements in weighing arguments for or against any conclusion, any teaching, any objective truth. And it's really rare, and it's really hard to do. All of us, myself included, have a tendency to put more weight 
on the arguments that support the conclusion that we are biased towards. I want this conclusion to be true, so I'm going to put more weight on this evidence. And I'm going to put less weight on this evidence. And I'm not treating this evidence fairly, and I'm treating this evidence too fairly, and that is evil. That's evil. Ideological theft, theft in weights and measures when pursuing truth, is just as abominable, I would imagine, in God's sight, as unequal weights when it comes to selling wheat and sugar. Because what's more important? A pound of wheat or knowing the truth? And you might say, well, you know, what does it really make a big deal if you know the truth or if you don't know the truth? I mean, who cares? Every bit of truth matters. Some of it matters more than others. But every bit of truth matters. And the more truth that you know, the more truth that your family knows, the more truth that your church knows, the more truth that your culture knows, it makes a difference. And every bit contributes. And our society is the poorer, our society is the more foolish, our society is the more misled, because everywhere, from the church to the academy, people use unequal weights and measures in evaluating evidence. And they allow their bias to determine the outcome. And they'll present their arguments. And you don't see the finger on the scale that is making that argument a little bit weightier than it should be. And the finger on the other side of the scale that's tipping that, so it's not as weighty. But the finger's there, and it's tipping. And God sees it, and he knows it, and he hates it. So, I'm going to do my best to keep my finger off the scale and just tell you, this is the proper weight for this evidence. And this is the proper weight for this evidence. And I put it all together, and I weigh it out, and this seems to be heavier, and this seems to be lighter. That's what we have to do when we're pursuing the truth. Intellectual honesty. Intellectual honesty is so important. This is a quote that I keep presenting to our students that meet for class here on Fridays. From Michael Faraday, a great thinker, contributed a lot to our knowledge of the truth in scientific area the scientific realm, which used to be called natural philosophy. Science used to be called natural philosophy. And he was a great scientist. You can read about him. And he was a great Christian. And he said this, I will simply express my strong belief that that point of self-education, which consists in teaching the mind to resist its desires and inclinations until they are proved to be right, is the most important of all not only in things of natural philosophy, but in every department of daily life. Now, science is important. We've we got to make sure that we don't get the science wrong, that there's nobody's finger on the scale saying, well, this evidence is more weighty than this evidence, and we want this to be true, so we're going to have unequal weights and measurements in this study and how we evaluate the results of this study and what we publish in the scientific journals and what the scientist on TV tells you is truth. Well, that's important that we get scientific matters right. But it's even more important that we get God's word right. It's even more important that we get matters of theology right. And so we have to train ourselves to resist our desires and inclinations. You have to be aware of your desires and inclinations in order to resist them, right? And so that's why I'm telling you my bias at the beginning of the message. So the first question then, was verses 9 through 20, were verses 9 through 20, this passage, was this passage in the original manuscript of Mark's gospel? Let me give you the evidence for the fact that this was a part of Mark's gospel. When it says some of the early manuscripts do not include chapter 16 verses 9 through 20, do you know how many some are? Well, if we're counting Greek manuscripts which is the original language, not talking about the translations into other language, I think we have about a thousand, a little over a thousand Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. How many do you think don't have these verses? Three. There's three out of a thousand, more than a thousand. That's like 99.7% of the Greek manuscripts have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I was like, okay, case closed. It's good. It's, it's in the Bible. That's all the evidence I need. Well, hold on. That's not all there is to the story. And so that's where you've got to see that you know, just presenting one piece of evidence 
doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. You've got to be a critical thinker. You've got to be able to listen to both sides of the argument. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the first one to present his case seems just until another comes and cross-examines. Now, if you're only listening to the one side, you're going to be in an echo chamber. And you're going to think, yep, it's all right, it's all good, it all makes sense, no argument, no debate. But you need to listen to the other side of the argument. You've got to allow for cross-examination of the evidence. What kind of a courtroom is it where you just had one side, the prosecutor, presenting all his evidence with no opportunity for the defense to cross-examine? That's not a courtroom. And so we've got to allow for both sides of the evidence. We've got to examine both sides of the equation. Yeah, it's, it's true that 99.7% of our Greek manuscripts contain Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and yet I'm going to tell you that I don't think it was originally in the Gospel of Mark. However, I will tell you that it is very old. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is very old. In fact, we have references from Christians writing in the second century, like 180 AD, probably the most important reference, by a theologian that I love, Irenaeus. And Irenaeus quotes from the long ending of Mark. That's what verses 9 through 20 are called, the long ending of Mark. He quotes from it around 180 AD. We know it's a true quote. We know that it's not something that was made up later and inserted. And he says that it's Mark, that Mark wrote it. And so here we have this very early, very wise, godly church father quoting from the long ending of Mark, so it shows that it was at least by 150 that Irenaeus had a copy of the Gospel of Mark with verses 9 through 20, and that he thought it was an original part of the Gospel. So there's the two strong pieces of evidence, pretty weighty, pretty strong evidence there that these verses belong in our English Bibles and we should take out the brackets, right? Well, what about the other side of the argument? I told you there were three Greek manuscripts that did not have the long ending but ended at verse 8. Two of those are famous for how good and reliable they are. That when people whose job it is to look at all the handwritten copies in Greek and in translation into other languages of the New Testament documents, who they spend their whole life in training and and learning from the people who came before them, and they spend hours and hours every day examining the documents, they say, and I believe them, that these two Greek manuscripts are some of the most reliable, most important testimonies that we have to the original copies of the New Testament books. One is named Codex Sinaiticus. You have to go to London to see Codex Sinaiticus. And when I was in London, I I made sure to stop by and see it because I I wanted to see with my own eyes this uh, amazing document. The other one is called Codex Vaticanus, which you have to go to Rome for. Vaticanus, the Vatican, they own Codex Vaticanus. And these two are complete, I think they are complete, books of the New Testament in Greek They go back to the 4th century, some of the earliest complete books that we have. And so, even though it's only two, the third one is much later and is not that important. So really, we have really two strong ones. Even though it's only two, these are a heavy-weighted two. These are heavyweights. This is not lightweight evidence. This is heavy evidence. Okay? And so, if you've got a thousand manuscripts that are from 1100 AD, and you've got two manuscripts that are from 400 now, I'm just throwing out numbers. Don't, don't like fact-check me on that, okay? I'm just giving you a general impression of, of the weight of the evidence. Well, these 1,000 were all made later, and they were all copied from things that were later, but these early ones are going to show you more accurately what was available in the first centuries of the church. You say, well, Timothy already said that Irenaeus had a copy of Mark at 180 AD that had the long ending in it, so there you go, Yeah. I'm not saying there weren't early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that had it, but I'm saying there were also early manuscripts that didn't have it. And the earlier the manuscript, the weightier the evidence is. Okay? Now, the other thing here that's very important is that when looking at what did the original text say, we not only use the manuscripts that we have, but we also look at what did the early church fathers write those Christians who were writing in the first 
400, 500 years of the church, what did they say about the ending of Mark? Because this is kind of a big deal, you know, that if you've got some manuscripts that don't have it and other manuscripts that do, you would expect that someone in the early church would have written about it and said, well, here's the deal, why there's some that have it and some that don't. And we do. We've got the writings left of early church scholars, early church pastors, who talk about why there's this difference and what to make of it. So Jerome, who translated the New Testament into Latin, the Latin Vulgate is Jerome's translation, just to give you some idea of, of his historical importance in the transmission of the text. The Latin Vulgate became basically the Bible of the church for a thousand years. And Jerome was like the premier textual scholar of his world, of his time. And Jerome wrote that most of the manuscripts and the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts in his time did not have verses 9 through 20 in the Gospel of Mark. Now, that's important. That's weighty evidence. So what we're told is, is that most of the Greek manuscripts at the time of Jerome, I think we're talking like 400, did not have it. So while we only have two of those, Jerome tells us that that was representative of most of them from that time. Okay. Now, Eusebius does the same thing. Eusebius is the historian of the ancient church. If you've been a part of my early church history class, you've heard me talk about Eusebius, you've heard me talk about Jerome, and that's a useful class for understanding this, and it's, it's online if you're interested in early church history. Eusebius was the historian of the early church, and he also says that most of the Greek manuscripts that he knew of did not contain the long ending of the Gospel of Mark. And so that's just two pieces of evidence on one side and a couple of pieces of evidence on the other side. And I'm sparing you all the other thousands of pieces of evidence that people have to wade through and sort through, and and I can't even sort through all of it. But as I do my best to try to sort through the weight of this evidence, I come to the conclusion that since most of the manuscripts did not have it at the time of Jerome and Eusebius, then most of our manuscripts that do have it came much later than that time, that if you go back, it's more likely that verses 9 through 20 were not an original part of the Gospel of Mark. There's a tendency among ancient Christian scribes who were copying the Bible to include things more than taking things out. The scribes wanted to make sure that they didn't take out something that was supposed to be there. So if there was doubt in their mind, the scribe didn't know, is this supposed to be in here or is it not supposed to be in here? Their tendency was to include it rather than to exclude it. We can tell this just by examining the ancient manuscripts. So it's more likely from that perspective as well that the ending originally was at 16.8 and that the longer ending got included more and more over time until it became almost all manuscripts had it. Also important to note, a lot of the manuscripts that did include it made a note saying, we don't know if it really belongs here. Now, I'm not saying half of them, or I don't remember the percentage, but it's there. There's a, a, number, a, a significant number of the Greek manuscripts that include it, that include it with hesitation. They're like, eh, maybe it's supposed to be there, maybe it's not supposed to be there. Now, there's a lot more to this discussion than just that. That's just the first question, and I'm going to throw more information in as we continue asking questions. So the second question is, well, just because it wasn't in Mark's original manuscript, maybe Mark added it later. You know, sometimes authors will do this. You'll write a book, and then you'll be like, oh, you know what? I don't really like the way I ended that. I think I need a better ending. I'm going to go back and write an ending and add that to it. And that could be an explanation why some of the manuscripts have it and some of them don't. It was added later, and so the people who had the original copy... They just copied that, which didn't have the longer ending. The people who had the updated edition, they copied that one. And so that could explain where these two different endings for the Gospel of Mark come about, the short and the long version. What do we think? Did Mark add it later? So now again, we've got to look at the evidence. Uh, what evidence do we have? How do we make a decision as to whether or not Mark wrote this? Well, the discussion about whether or not Mark wrote chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, is technical it's long, and I'm going to spare you as much of it as I can. However, notice a couple of things. Notice verse 8, back in your text, Mark chapter 16, verse 8. I told you I was going to read verses 9 through 20. I should probably do that. Start in verse 8. 
They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, who's the subject in that verse? The women, right? Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. They're the subject. Now go to verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, is that continuing the same thought of verse 8? No. Now we're going back. We're going back to when Christ arose, and now the subject is Christ. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. So it doesn't connect the way that you would expect it to connect if, if Mark was writing it in his normal order. It seems like there's a little bit of disconnect here. Now that's just one piece of evidence. I'm not saying that proves anything, but it's just something that you've got to put on the scale. And then you see when verse 9 refers to Mary Magdalene, it tells us that she's the one from whom Christ had cast out seven demons. Now, Mary Magdalene was already introduced back in chapter 15. He's already talked about in chapter 16. If Mark was continuing writing on from verse 8, it just seems a little weird that he would reintroduce Mary Magdalene in this fashion. That, okay, now I'm going to tell you more about Mary Magdalene that I didn't tell you before when I was introducing her the first time. Not saying it couldn't happen, it's just a little weird doesn't seem like what somebody would do, right? Then, let's go ahead and read the whole thing. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons." They will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So, then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, while some of the things in here are not my favorite way of saying something, and I could wish that it was worded a little bit differently. There's no heresy here, okay? This is good stuff. I'm not saying this isn't good stuff. We've got the ascension of the Lord. We've got the session of the Lord. We've got his rebuke of their unbelief, his commission to them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I mean, this will preach. This is good. And it doesn't contradict anything that we have in the other gospels. And so maybe Mark did write it. It's all good, and you would expect, wouldn't you, that a gospel like Mark would at least have some appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to his followers after his resurrection. I mean, you read through chapter 16, verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I mean, what kind of an ending is that? It seems more like it stops than it ends. We've all been building up to the resurrection of Christ. I mean, there's got to be an appearance of Christ to his disciples at the end of the gospel. So that makes a lot of people think, well, maybe Mark had to stop at 16.8 and the book got copied and passed on, but then he added verses 9 through 20. Well, I don't think that Mark wrote verses 9 through 20 because verses 9 through 20 do not bear any of the marks, no pun intended, of Mark's writing. Let me give you some examples. Now, any one of these could be dismissed, but when you put them all together, it starts to get pretty weighty, okay? Remember, throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, his favorite word, immediately. Immediately, immediately, immediately. You just get tired of hearing it, but there's no immediately's in this. Now, I know it's only 9 through 20, what is that, 11 verses? So, yeah, maybe no occurrence of immediately is fine. But it is something to notice. Other Markisms... Mark likes to start a lot of sentences with chi, which is the Greek word for and. And starting a sentence with chi is very much what a Hebrew author would do if he was writing in Greek. Mark is a Jew. He thinks in Jewish thought, even though he's writing in Greek, which he's good at. He's not a terrible Greek writer. It's still his second language. 
And so he writes Greek in a very Hebrew way. But that's not what we have here in these verses. In these last 11 or 12 verses, there's no use of chi as the connecting word between sentences, but instead this author uses de, which is another word in Greek that can be used as a connecting word, and it's more normal Greek to do it that way. So the Hebraism of how he starts his sentences seems different from the way that Mark would write. Also, the sentences are more complex. Mark is very straight. He's very action-oriented. And, and this writing is just not the same style. It's more complex sentences. Also, Mark would use a lot of historical present tenses in his writing where he would say, and then Jesus says this, and then Jesus does that, where he's speaking in the present tense, but he's describing past action. We don't have any of that here in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 either. Also, many people have analyzed the words that are here in Mark chapter 16, and it just doesn't seem like it's the same writer. For example, Mark tends to use the word theomai for seeing something. This author tends to use the word horao or blepo, synonyms, for seeing something. Now again, any one of these types of things, you'd be like, eh, I can explain that. But when you put them all together, it's like, well, yeah, I find it hard to believe that the same author who wrote Mark chapters 1, 1 through 16, 8 wrote this section as well. And even reading it in English, you can kind of get that sense. This is different. This is not the same style. Now, I think that internal evidence of the style and the language and the grammar and all of that is enough for me to conclude I don't think Mark wrote this. Who did write it? Well, question number three. Was it written by inspiration through a different author? Okay, so... We know that when Mark originally wrote, or at least I'm concluding, I'm concluding, most likely, when Mark originally wrote, he didn't include verses 9 through 20, and I'm concluding that Mark did not add it later, but maybe another inspired author added it later. He's like, well, Mark didn't get to finish, and I should finish it for him. He's an apostle or a prophet, and he comes along and writes this ending. That's a possibility, right? And in that case, it should be in the Bible, because it's inspired scripture, a lot of people who like these verses and want to keep them in the Bible might like this idea that even if Mark didn't write it, it was written by an inspired author. Now, how do you know whether or not this apparently added on section to Mark's last chapter, how do you know if it was written by an apostle or not? Well, someone could argue the early church recognized it as scripture. They had early copies of it. Irenaeus quoted it as scripture. And so if the early church recognizes the scripture, then that's good evidence that it is inspired scripture. Oh, that's a good argument. I like it. You could also say there's nothing heretical about this section. You might not like the way he talks about baptism or handling snakes or drinking poison, but there's nothing innately heretical about what is in this section, and it's got some really good stuff. So maybe it was written by another apostle and was inspired. Now, my answer to question number three is going to be, it's possible, but I still don't think so. Maybe this is my bias coming through. But when I read it, my impression of it, sorry, you know, that's what we end up with sometimes when it's difficult to tell, is that this is more like some of the early church writings that I've taught on and shared with you, like the Didache or the Epistle of Clement or the Letter of Polycarp, that are really good. They're just not inspired scripture. And that's what I think about this. I think it's really good. I can see why it got added on. Mark seems like he needs a better ending. It doesn't seem like he has an ending, and, and this is a good one. But I don't think that it is inspired scripture. And a lot of that is just my impression. So I'm not presenting a whole lot of open and shut case on that. But that leads to another question. One question leads to another. If it was not a part of Mark's original writing, and Mark did not add it later, well, then that raises a question. Did Mark intend his gospel to end at 16.8? Because there are ways that a gospel could end without having intended it to end that way. For one, the last page could have gotten lost. Some people aren't comfortable with that idea. They say, well, God keeps his word. God preserves his word. He wouldn't allow the last page of his gospel to get lost. But, who knows what God would allow? I mean, 
that makes sense to me that God wouldn't allow it to be lost, but we can't always tell God what he's going to allow and what he's not going to allow. So maybe it got lost before many copies were made, and therefore all we have is what goes up to 16.8. Another theory that people might like better if they don't like the idea of God's word getting lost is that Mark was either imprisoned or killed before he could finish writing his book. Again, people would say, well, you know, I don't think God would have someone write a gospel and not allow them to finish it and have it end at 16.8. That doesn't seem like something God would providentially ordain. I agree, it seems a little weird. And so it leads to this question, did Mark intend to end his gospel at 16.8? Now, for those who agree with what I agree with, that Mark 16.9-20 was not an original part of the gospel, the consensus on question number four used to be that no, Mark did not intend his gospel to end there, but that something happened. We don't know whether it was lost or whether he died or, or what. Something happened. And so Mark intended there to be more, but we don't have it for whatever reason. Now, if that's true, well, then you should read the gospel of Mark and try to figure out how would he have ended it if we had it. And you can get some clues from the text. He talks about the angel who told them that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So you might imagine that Mark would have written about the disciples going to Galilee and meeting Jesus because Jesus had told it to the disciples earlier and the angel had reaffirmed it. And it only makes sense that they would have some kind of meeting with the Lord Jesus to be the climax of the book. And so I think I like the idea that if Mark did not intend his gospel to end at 16.8, he probably would have included a meeting in Galilee like Matthew does. Matthew's ending is probably pretty similar to what Mark's ending would have been if he had written it or if we had it. However, recent opinion, I guess I'm a child of my age, I'm going along with recent opinion. Recent opinion is is that yes, Mark did intend to end his gospel at 16.8. And this just seems weird. You know, like I said, you're reading along. Don't be alarmed. He's risen. He's not here. Go tell his disciples. They go out, astonished, and they don't say anything to anyone for they were afraid. The end. What? What do you mean the end? That can't be the end. And so over time in the last hundred years, scholars have started to discover evidence and wait that yes, this is a way that people would have possibly ended books like this in that time, in that place, that Mark had already told us how it's going to end. And so he doesn't have to write how it's going to end because we already know that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. That's one explanation for why it ends this way. I have another explanation that I'm partial to, again, letting my partiality show. Mark was writing the gospel probably when Peter was still alive. And probably when a lot of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were still alive. So what if, I'm not saying this is what happened, I'm just saying what if. What if Mark wrote his gospel in Rome and he didn't want to write the eyewitness accounts because he wanted the eyewitnesses to say it themselves? He's like, I'm setting you up, all right? So I go up to 16.8 and then Peter, you tell what happened. I think that's a great theory. Now, you know, everyone's going to think differently. You can have your own opinion whether you think that's a good theory or not. But I mention it to you because the idea is just because you don't know why Mark would end at 16.8 doesn't mean there's not a good reason. There could be a hundred reasons why Mark ended at 16.8 and we just don't know. And you know what? There's a lot of theories. You go out and you read the commentaries on Mark 16.8 And they've got all kinds of ideas. Well, Mark wants us to do this, or Mark wants us to think this, or this is why Mark, from a literary perspective, ended at 16.8, and there's all these different theories. And I don't know which one would be right. I don't even know if he intended to end at 16.8. But if he intended to end at 16.8, I'm just saying it's not impossible. Just because we don't know why he intended to end at 16.8 doesn't mean that he didn't intend to end at 16.8. I mean, can you crawl into the mind of, of someone from a totally different culture, thousands of years ago, and explain why they wrote the way that they wrote? Probably not. It can be a little difficult. Now, that leads to the next question. If Mark did intend to end his gospel at 16.8, what are we supposed to make of that? Now, I already let the cat out of the bag. I got carried away and was already telling you 
what I think is Mark's purpose in ending at 16.8. Again, I'm not holding to any of this ironclad. I, I just think this is the most likely explanation as far as the evidence appears to me, and I'm open to being persuaded. But I think that Mark intended to end at 16.8, and one of the things that I would say is a possibility is that he was leaving room for the living witnesses to take the stand after his gospel was read and to tell what happened. Now, all of this is probably somewhat confusing, as it is to me. And so it leads to the related question, what does this mean for the doctrine of inerrancy? You know, it's kind of important that we have a Bible that we can trust and that we read it and we're like, this is God's word. We don't want to be going to our Bibles and be like, well, you know, the long ending of Mark, I don't know if it's supposed to be there. I don't know if it's not supposed to be there. And so what other parts of Scripture are there? I mean, maybe there's whole sections in the book of Romans, or maybe there's a whole big part of the uh, Gospel of Matthew that got added in, and we don't even know that it was added in, and it's not supposed to be there, and it's not inspired Scripture. So this can be very unsettling for Christians, and that's what the enemy loves to do with this passage. If you go and online and you look at some of the arguments that people who hate Christianity and hate the Bible try to use against the Bible, this is one of the things they like to throw in your face and say, hey, you know, you don't even know how the Gospel of Mark was supposed to end. I mean, this is supposed to be your inerrant, authoritative, infallible book. What about Mark chapter 16 and the long ending? Well, someone who presents that argument doesn't understand the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy does not teach that the Bible has been perfectly preserved. That's the doctrine of preservation. And the doctrine of preservation doesn't teach 100% perfect preservation. It's not like you can take your Greek New Testament that was published this year and say, this is the perfectly preserved Word of God. It's changing. The Greek text that we translate from the Bible from is always changing. So we, we don't have a perfectly preserved text. But what do we have? We have a well-preserved text. That's the doctrine of preservation. And the well-preserved text that we have was inerrant in its original autographs. We say, well, what good does that do to me? You know, I'm, I'm playing the, the, the skeptic, the scholar here. What good does it do to me that the original autographs, which we don't have, were inerrant, and now we just have copies that have errors in them, like adding a whole section at the end of the Gospel of Mark. God has preserved his word well enough so that we can know the truth with certainty. The doctrine of inerrancy of the autographs and the doctrine of preservation that God has preserved his word well leads to a book in your hands that is the word of God, that is truth, that is perfect in the doctrine that it teaches. Now, whether Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 belongs in our Bibles or not, it doesn't change anything. Because there's nothing in verses 9 through 20 that is not in other parts of the New Testament. It teaches the same doctrine. It teaches the same truth. Let's take a look at some of those things. All right, so when it says that Mary Magdalene was the one from whom he had cast out seven demons, do you know where we can learn that in the Bible aside from this? Luke chapter 8, the opening verses of Luke chapter 8. This is how Luke introduces Mary Magdalene. In verse 10, where it talks about she went and told them, well, that's in John chapter 20, verse 18. In verse 12, where it says he appeared in another form to two of them, well, that was in our scripture reading from Luke chapter 24, right? That's why I had that as our scripture reading. When it says in verse 14, that he appeared to the eleven while they were reclining at the table and rebuked their unbelief. Well, that's also from Luke 24. We read about that. And then when it says in verse 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, well, that's in Matthew chapter 28. That's the Great Commission. And when it says in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, well, that's what Jesus taught in John chapter 20, verse 23. Now, one area that does get a little bit more of attention here is verses 17 and 18, 
where you've got the signs that accompany those who believe. And so a cessationist like myself, who doesn't think that people are speaking in tongues today, but they're speaking gibberish, a cessationist like myself, who doesn't think that the faith healers on TV are actually laying their hands on the sick and having them recover, maybe I'm biased against this passage because the non-cessationists, the charismatics, can use it to try to bolster their case. Well, there's plenty of other passages that teach that God gave these signs to the Christians who went out and proclaimed this message. There's no disputing that those whom Christ sent out to preach in the first century, that they did speak in new tongues. They did cast out demons. They did even pick up serpents with their hands. This is in Acts chapter 28, verses 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul shipwrecked on the island of Malta. They're building a fire, and while firewood is being gathered, a snake latches on, a poisonous snake latches on to the Apostle Paul's hand, and he shakes it off into the fire. And the, the people are like, well, this guy must have been a bad guy. God sent this snake to kill him. But Paul was just fine. And that gave Paul then the opportunity to preach the gospel to these people and tell them it's by the power of God that he's preserved my life. And people of the island heard the good news. So even things like that, I'm not disputing that this happened. Just because he says these signs will accompany those who believe doesn't mean that they're going to have every person who follows, and in all times and in all places that these signs are going to be there. But historically, these signs did accompany those who preached, namely the apostles and the first generation of evangelists. Now, the one that's a little bit hard to find in the New Testament is the drinking deadly poison. There's no place in the New Testament where the apostles drink deadly poison and are not harmed by it. However, Interestingly, there is a story about this that is preserved in the writings of Papias. Papias related the account of a man, Justus Barsabbas, who was forced to drink poison, but it didn't harm him because God protected him. And so this might be a clue as to where verses 9 through 20 come from, because Papias, who relates that story that ties in with this particular part of the verse, was a disciple of a man named Aristian. Now, you can read a little bit about these guys in, in church history. And Aristian has his name attached to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, in one Greek manuscript. One Greek manuscript from like 989 has a note that these last 11 verses were not by Mark, but they were by Aristian, the elder. Now, it's possible that this manuscript is misguided, has the wrong information, and it's not by Aristian. We don't know, but an interesting possibility to me that perhaps this is from Aristian. He wrote it for another purpose, and then people were like, hey, Mark needs an ending. We don't like Mark's ending. Here's a good ending. Let's take it from Aristian, put it over here, and it fits. In that case, then, it's an example of early church writing, a record from the post-apostolic era that is true and accurate and is confirmed by all these other scripture verses that I just gave you, you know, Luke, John, Matthew, but that it's not necessary because we already have all of this doctrine. We already have all of these passages in other gospels. And so whether you take it out or whether you add it, doesn't really make much difference. And that's what I mean, that God has preserved his word well enough. That he's preserved it well enough so that whether Mark belongs in there or not, it doesn't change what we believe. It doesn't change what we preach. We have the truth in the scriptures that God has preserved for us, marvelously preserved. Look at it this way. Instead of being all distraught about we don't know whether Mark belongs in there or not, and when I say we don't know, we pretty much know, okay? There's only a few people who still hold on to the fact that well, I really want Mark to be in there. And, and they do so for ideological, theological reasons. The evidence just really points to the fact that it doesn't belong. And that is actually encouraging for us for the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture because it shows us that God has preserved his word so well that we can tell when something has been added. We can tell when something has been added. Why can we tell? Because God has preserved so many copies of Scripture and he's preserved so much church history and he's preserved so much that we can look at the data and be like, yep, yeah, that wasn't there originally. 
So instead of using this to undermine your faith in the Scripture, use it to strengthen your faith in the Scripture that God has preserved his word so well that we know when something has been added. Now, that leads us to our final conclusion. The final conclusion is, I don't think Mark wrote it, I don't think it belongs in the Bible, but it was written early, it doesn't contain any heresy, and if you like it, great. There's a lot of early church writings that I like and that are great and they're profitable and they're edifying. This is good, profitable, edifying. There's nothing bad here. And for those Christians who through the centuries thought that this was an actual part of the ending of the Gospel of Mark, like Irenaeus, great, no harm done. It's all part of God's good providence and his working in history. But in the end, I think Mark ended at 16.8, and I think he intended to end at Mark 16.8. Do I know why he intended to end it there? No, not really. I've got my ideas, I've got my theories, but that's why I stopped last week at Mark 16.8. And that's why I took a whole week today to explain to you, so that when you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you're not like, hey, what does this mean? What about that? I don't want to try to hide or ignore problems but instead we allow all things to be exposed to truth and we're not afraid of anything that is true. Let's have a closing word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this gospel of Mark that has been such a joy to study and to teach. And Lord, I confess that I was not looking forward at the beginning of this study to getting to chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. But Lord, through the process, through the work, I thank you for how you've encouraged me, how you've strengthened me. And I pray that what I've said today will be used by your Holy Spirit to strengthen the faith of those who are here. That you have spoken an inerrant word. That you have preserved your word for us. That you have, by your Holy Spirit and your good providence, led us into all the truth. And that we hold in our hands the word of God. Lord, we thank you for this precious treasure. What would we have in the world without it? Now, Lord God, as we go, help us to think through some of these things that we have been presented with and to be able to think rightly, not allowing our prejudices or our biases to cause us to tip the scale, but let us always, in all matters of pursuing truth, do so with a wholehearted pursuit of truth that doesn't just seek to confirm what we want to believe. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.